0: Hey, welcome back to Working in the Weeds. I'm Christine Krebs, the Education and Training Specialist out here at the Center for Aquatic and Invasive Plants. And sitting next to me today, as per usual, is co-host Dr. Jason Farrell. Hi, Christine. Hey, and uh, we have a special guest Zooming in with us today virtually, so this is really exciting for us. Um, Leroy Rogers from the South Florida Water Management District is coming in from West Palm Beach, Florida today. And so we're really excited to have you, Leroy.
1: Thanks. Great to be here.
0: Yes. And the theme of this these episodes has been these deep dive plant profiles, right? So we've talked about water hyacinth, hydrilla, water lettuce, alligator weed is coming up as well. And so today we want to talk about some of these nuanced type plants, right? Like cattail, these
2: natives that kind of it's a native plant. Sometimes it's great. Not always. So this is why we're going to continue with our theme of it's complicated. Yes.
0: So before we really dive into this plant and talk about what it's like to manage these plants, Leroy, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your background and who you are as a scientist and what brought you to the South Florida Water Management District?
1: Sure. Yeah, happy to. Uh, so I, I grew up here in Florida, uh, North Florida specifically, and uh, I suppose my career in the sciences and natural resource management really started right where you guys are at the University of Florida, where I earned my first degree in botany. Um, and while I was there, I was very lucky to work with the uh, ecologist Dr. Jack Ewell on one of his projects in Central America, where he was modeling agroforestry systems after the function and structure of tropical lowland forests. And that was my first exposure to sort of applying ecological principles to real-world problems. I think that's really where I got the bug to do restoration ecology. Um, but then after that, after my undergraduate studies, I then worked to work for the Nature Conservancy on a collaborative project with the University of Florida and the Department of Defense, researching the best methods for large-scale restoration of fire-suppressed longleaf pine sandhills. And at that point, I knew that I really wanted to find a way to make a career doing ecological restoration in some way. Uh, so from there, I went on to graduate school and I worked with Dr. Frank Day at the Old Dominion University in Virginia, where we studied restoration of Atlantic white cedar forest in the Great Dismal Swamp. I learned a lot about carbon cycling and wetlands and poison ivy. Um, and, you know, again, con- continuing on that theme of doing ecological restoration, Uh, About that time after graduating there, my wife and I decided to move to South Florida, and she had family there. Um, And it's funny, I grew up in North Florida, but I really hadn't experienced South Florida uh, very much as a child. Um, So it was a very new world for me to come down to South Florida, but when I got here, I was lucky enough to get a job with the South Florida Water Management District, and I've been here for about 23 years now. Uh, working on invasive species, as well as managing large constructive wetlands that we use to improve water quality in the area.
2: Yeah, so I was going to ask, you know, you, you came in as a botany major, which is that's not an overrepresented major. So most everybody comes in as a business major or pre-dentistry or something like that. Not a lot of folks coming in to be a botanist. So what was that path? What brought you from the North Florida area to UF to be a botanist?
1: Right. yeah no that's a that's a great question And uh, when I grew up uh, we, we I grew up in Tallahassee sort of on the outskirts of town and I was lucky to have acres and acres and acres of steep heads and and uh, forest behind our home uh, with no neighborhoods or anything. I spent hours uh, literally every day it seemed uh, wandering around in the woods looking at plants and amphibians and walking through creeks. And that definitely was a formative time for me. And uh, basically, you know, as a young uh, teenager had fallen in love with, you know, working in the woods. And it was just a natural thing for me to pursue uh, to try to find some kind of work, you know, doing environmental, uh, or if there were, let me start over on that one. Mm -hmm. Um, It was was a very natural uh, progression for me to find a career working, you know, in some sort of environmental field.
0: Yeah, thank you. We really appreciate that. And so bringing back the context of working with South Florida Water Management District after your education, what is the water? What are the water management districts? Right. There are different. There are how many in Florida? What do they do? And and what is their relationship with the natural resources? Yeah, And
2: they've got all these other agencies. The, there's the Vision of Environmental Protection and FWC and all of these other wildlife conservation-style groups that are there for environmental quality. Where does the district fit into that? What What is their specific mission?
1: Right. So there are five regional water districts that have been established by the state of Florida. And it's the policy of the state that the state's water resources should be managed at a regional level. Um, and so many years ago, uh, the authority to manage water resources was delegated by the Department of Environmental Protection, who has that uh, responsibility, Uh, they delegated that to these regional uh, water management districts. And those uh, districts all have their own governing bodies. And that way, local regions, and it's all the state is kind of divided up into five regional watersheds, if you will, uh, where those local regions are able to have a say in how water uh, resources are managed. And so that's how they were formed. And uh, the South Florida Water Management District covers a 16-county region that stretches from Orlando to the Florida Keys. So we're definitely the largest of those uh, water management districts. And while the original and primary role for water management districts is flood protection, our district over the last 70 years has grown uh, to include a number of other missions, including restoring the Everglades and the Kissimmee River. Uh, which is done in a partnership with the federal government, uh, improving regional water quality and managing our regional water supply. So, you know, over the last seven decades or so, the scope of our mission has really expanded and especially with regard to Everglades restoration.
2: Well, absolutely and, and you even complicate that further with what is the population increase that has happened in that region from 1950 until now? What 10 million people added to that area? Right. So lots of nutrients, a lot of
1: water issues there. That's right. And when I you know I mentioned that I really hadn't spent much time in South Florida as a child, but you know coming down there after graduate school You know, it really struck me the strong juxtaposition of heavy development in these urbanized and and suburban areas. And then there's a levee and then there's this massive wild landscape. And you can really see how those two uh, features in South Florida, you know, often sometimes conflict. Oftentimes we found some clever ways to make them work together. But it's just, you know, you, you get up in the air and you look at the Everglades and just see how cleanly divided the developed areas are with these you know, vast landscapes of, of natural areas. It's really amazing.
2: Well, when you say there's no place like it in the world, that is not an exaggeration. There truly is not another place like it in the world.
1: Yes, that we always say that there is no other Everglades
2: So Leroy, you've given us a really good overview of what the district is and what its responsibilities are and how it kind of fits in this big state, handling some really complicated things. So what role does your group have? What is that group and what role do you all play in this overall mission?
1: Right, so I I currently am the section lead for the district's invasive species uh, program uh, for our natural areas. We have another team that's really focused on our canal levee system, but in the case of the South Florida Water Management District, we are, if not the largest, one of the largest single landowners in the region uh, with nearly one and a half million acres of public lands within our boundary. And our ability to successfully manage those resources um, is often hampered by invasive and nuisance plants. And we've known that from the very beginning. Vegetation management's been a core mission for the Water Management District since we were just starting out just doing flood control, right? So many of these invasive plants are impacting our natural areas, these conservation lands. But importantly, they also grow aggressively in our waterways and can significantly interfere with operation and maintenance of our regional flood control control infrastructure, you know, to give you an example of the scale of the work that we're doing down here in South Florida, we typically sweep somewhere in the neighborhood of 60,000 acres of land each year looking for and controlling uh, roughly 75 or so uh, invasive and nuisance plant species. And you know, being in South Florida, we generally have a year round growing season. So our team is engaged in vegetation management activities pretty much year round.
2: So is your mission just to kind of keep these public lands wild or are these invasive and nuisance plants causing uh, function problems? So which which way are you coming at this?
1: I would say it's both. You know, the the district has, uh, along with other agencies, have acquired a lot of land for the purpose of conservation. In the case of the district, much of that, much of those acquisitions were so that there were natural areas that could hold water, you know, as part of our water management goals. Um, But with that comes the responsibility to be good land stewards on those lands. And you know we know that there are many invasive species that are impacting the basic ecological ecological functions or the structure of, uh, or maybe impacting native plant diversity. So uh, it's on us to be good stewards and manage for those species. And again, we have over 2000 miles of uh, canals and levees. These aggressive aquatic plants that grow there are a direct threat to our core mission. And so we're out there making sure that we achieve good control of these harmful aquatic plants to make sure that we can provide water deliveries when needed or flood protection when it's critical.
2: Now, one of the things that I think is very important is that we always stay on the same page with what we're calling things. So we've thrown out invasive plants, nuisance, native. So would you kind of run through these different classifications to make sure we're all on the same page and using the same terms here?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, this is a great discussion uh, topic because this comes up frequently in our field. There are a lot of terms out there, like you said, exotic, non-indigenous, alien invasive that are used to categorize species by their region of origin or perceived value or potential harm. And it does get quite confusing, uh, especially to the lay people, but quite frankly, to us uh, as well in the field. So, you know, having clear definitions for these terms is important. And I'd like to say before going any further, I want to give a quick plug to Dr. Basil Iannone and his collaborators with the University of Florida's Invasive Species Council for publishing what I think is an excellent assessment of the various terms that are being used to describe these species. And they've made some really good recommendations to standardize them. And in fact, the district is basically adopting those recommendations um, in our our use of those terms. But anyway, so when we talk about a native species, uh, here we're referring to a species that evolved in a particular geographic location, right? And in the case of North America, Uh, We generally consider a species native if it was present prior to European colonization. But as many pointed out, uh, this time reference is admittedly somewhat arbitrary uh, since we do know, of course, that humans were moving around species in this region uh, long before European expansion to the hemisphere, Uh, but that's the standard that we use because we have better documentation of uh, when these species arrived. And when we refer to a non-native species, we mean the opposite, a species that did not evolve in a particular geographic area. And of course, there are many non-native species that have been introduced by humans to new parts of the world for various purposes, right? And many of these eventually become established. And by established, what we mean is a species has escaped confinement or cultivation and is now spreading independently. And to give you an example, in Florida, I believe there are over now 1,400 established non-native plant species. Uh,
2: it, yeah, it's a great, Florida's a great home for a lot of people. It, it doesn't matter if you're uh, not from Florida, <laughs> if you're from somewhere else in the U.S. or if you're a plant or if you're a snail, there's a, it's a great home for a lot of folks.
1: Yes, sir, we have a lot of diversity here, and, you know, and that's a good point because there are a lot of established non-native species, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're all harmful. We have a small set, subset of these um, non-native species that are established that we often classify as invasive, and what we mean there is specifically that the species is non-native to the area. It was introduced by human activity, whether intentionally or not and it causes, or is likely to cause, environmental or economic harm and or harm to humans. That's a pretty standard definition used by many, including the National Basic Species Council. And those are the species that many of the agencies and organizations really focus their management efforts on. Uh, The other term, nuisance species, refers to a native species uh, that for various reasons causes economic or environmental harm. And that is often due to aggressive growth that's triggered by disturbances from human activity. And whether this term is given to a species is often very much context dependence, meaning that the species is considered a nuisance uh, in certain scenarios. Uh, it's important to point out that the species itself isn't a nuisance, They're in, you know, in, you know, it's a native species and it belongs there. But because of some uh, outside force, typically human related, uh, the plant has developed some sort of aggressive growth that has some sort of economic or environmental harm.
2: And you make a really good point here that we're not making a value judgment on the plant itself. What we're talking about is what the plant is doing. So we get into this way of thinking where we so often want to go non-native, bad, native, good, and we want to forget the rest of the context and the rest of the discussion. But there are non-native plants like potato and citrus that they're, they're, they're a really great asset to the state of Florida. But just because it's native doesn't necessarily mean it gets a pass and everything about it is good because there are some native plants that can be a real, real problematic.
0: Yeah. And so for the focus of today's episode is a very common nuisance native that I believe the water management districts deal with quite often, right? Cattail. So before we kind of talk about what it's like managing a nuisance native like cattail, let's take a moment and kind of talk about the plant itself. So cattail, uh, typha species, right? They're native to Florida. They typically occur in wetlands, lakes, rivers, canals, and then stormwater treatment areas, which we'll refer to commonly in this episode, and other disturbed sites that are often used for human, you know, natural resource use and consumption, right? And then these cattails, just to briefly describe they they can get up to 12 feet tall um, they have strap life leaf, leaf blades and we were actually discussing today is it a grass is it not and so it's not a grass but it can look like a grass it is a monocot um, and then the inflorescence or the flowering part of the plant um, it's spike like with very tiny flowers and and you know jokingly I refer to it as, as something that kind of looks like a corn dog right um, but Leroy you <laughs> have the botany degree so if you want to go ahead and describe it any further for the listeners I would really appreciate that. <laughs>
1: Well, I think you actually did a really good job. That's probably how I would have described it. Um, You know, you point out it's very unique uh, inflorescence, and it is uh, recognized by most people. Most people see that as, uh, hey, I know that plant, that's cattail, because of that very unique inflorescence. Now, in that corn dog uh, is a lot of seeds. It has a lot of seeds, and they are wind-dispersed and those seeds uh, will blow in the wind and they'll find their way uh, to at the appropriate site. And that's one of the reasons that we often see it develop in a recently disturbed wetland area, right? If you've got some some kind of activity, maybe somebody's dug a new ditch or something like that, you know, where you've got some bare soil. Somehow it's like, wow, there's a cattail. Well, where did it come from? You don't see any other cattail around. It's because it has those copious quantities of small little seeds.
2: So is that the primary way that it spreads or does it have a couple of different mechanisms?
1: I yes, exactly. And so that's one way that it uh, will disperse and reproduce sexually, but there is another part about cattail and it has very abundant and rapid growing underground stems called rhizomes. And these rhizomes are there's a lot of biomass down there and the plant will aggressively grow as we say asexually or clonally. In the area once it becomes established. And that's one of the reasons that this plant, uh, under the right conditions, can be such a dominant competitor in a wetland and basically choke everything out because of these uh, very fast-growing and aggressive rhizomes.
2: So those rhizomes, when you're in South Florida in lots of sunlight, long days, plenty of heat, you've got good nutrient-rich water, how big do those rhizomes get? I mean, are they an inch in diameter? Are they larger?
1: I've seen them much larger than an inch, um, but, you know, an inch is a good, you know, average size, I would say, but, you know, certainly down, especially in our stormwater treatment areas where we're giving them a really great environment to grow in, uh, you know, you can see them up to, you know, almost two inches in diameter.
0: So similar to the other plants that we've covered during this season and will continue to cover, it's kind of got it figured out, right? It's got these tricks of the trade, so to speak, in these natural environments to kind of t- make the most out of the situation, right?
2: And it just can creep and it is holding massive amounts of energy to to help sustain that plant. If times get bad, if water gets too high, if water gets too low, it's got this big bank of energy that it can rely on. And that's why this plant is so persistent and it's a survivor.
0: But again, remember, listeners, if you're walking around in your neighborhood and you see a little stand of it in your retention pond in your neighborhood, context matters, right? And so it's not always a trigger point of like, oh, I see cattail. It's bad, right? We're talking about these stormwater treatment areas that are acres large and needing to function for cities and communities of hundreds of thousands of people, correct?
2: So, Leroy, where do you guys have this plant and where – is it on the continuum? Is there any place that it's helpful? Is it only a few places that it's not helpful? So, what is the relationship of the district to this plant?
1: Uh, so, this is a really interesting story. So, cattail, of course. Let me let's go back uh, to some basics here. Um, there are a number of species of native cattail uh, in North America. We have two that are native here in Florida. And in the South Florida Water Management District, the most common one is what we call southern cattail or Typha domingensis. And this plant uh, has was historically present in the Everglades. And if we could go back in time 200 years, you would have probably found it in small patches here and there in the Everglades, probably associated with some sort of uh, localized elevated nutrients or changes in hydrology and common examples would have been, say, a bird rookery where we have a lot of bird droppings, elevating nutrients there, or maybe an alligator hole where you've got a deeper Mm. um, area and alligators are uh, kicking up sediment and increasing available nutrients. Um, But, you know, again, it would have been kind of locally patchy, scattered about the Everglades. Mm -hmm. Um, But as many people know, beginning in the 1800s, canals were dug within the northern Everglades to drain uh, the area for agriculture and provide flood protection for developing areas. And this led to drier dry seasons and wetter wet seasons, right, as we went from a rain-driven landscape to a partitioned landscape with impoundments and water was being directed by canals. Uh, We also saw more extreme wildfires as a result of these changes in hydrology that changed the topography of certain parts of the Everglades. And we, of course, had changes in the nutrient loading of the Everglades. We now had point source inputs of excess phosphorus from runoff from adjacent agricultural areas. Um, So those changes in the environment in the Everglades basically facilitated the rapid expansion of southern cattail and by, we don't have current, uh, we're working on some current estimates uh, right now, but by tw- 2005, which is the last estimate we have in that region, we had an estimated 28,000 acres of dense cattail stands in the northern reaches of the Everglades. And so the question is, why do we care, right? Well, this transformation from the characteristic open water sloughs and sawgrass marches uh, that you know we think of when we think of the Everglades to these dense stands of southern cattail has less wildlife value especially to alligators and foraging wading birds and we see negative changes to many fundamental components of the ecosystem such as reductions in periphyton uh, that's an important foundation of the Everglades food web this is that matrix of algae and fungi and bacteria and invertebrates that is basically you know critical to the food web that is so important to our larger wildlife like wading birds uh, we also see declines in fish abundance and changes to water quality, so not a good scenario if you're interested in restoring the Everglades.
2: So a few cat tails back in the, the in the old days was a wonderful thing; they had its place, but after we changed the environment, they started then moving in and displacing and really disrupting the ecology of the whole system.
1: That's correct.
2: And a
0: common theme, you know, invasive species is a human-made problem that requires human-made solutions, right? And it sounds like that's what the Water Management District balances with every day, right? Science and solutions.
2: So within this scenario, where are you guys using this plant? Where are you guys struggling with this plant? Because I'm assuming the answer is going to be it's complicated.
1: It is complicated and so if you can sort of visualize we you know we're a podcast so we don't have a a graphic map here but if you can visualize south florida you have lake okeechobee and then directly south of lake okeechobee you have a large area known as the everglades agricultural area where there's a lot of agricultural production and then which was again former everglades right it's been converted to agriculture At the southern end of this agricultural zone is the beginning of the current extent extent of the Florida Everglades. And because of these point source inputs of surface water that again are laden with excess phosphorus, we tend to see cattail growing mostly on the northern fringes of this, the, the current extent of the Florida Everglades. So that's in the natural areas. Um, But we, of course, will see them in any area where there is elevated nutrients and the appropriate hydrology. The South Florida Water Management District is engaged in restoration of the Everglades, of course. And there are two main areas that we are focusing on doing um, restoration. The first is to do what we call getting the water right, right. We want to improve the timing, the quantity and quality of the water entering into the Everglades. And one of the ways, so we've done a number of things, we've implemented some regulatory programs to help reduce phosphorus inputs into the system. We are replumbing the flood control system to help uh, improve the way we do water deliveries to the Everglades and to the urbanized areas that need water. And we're also doing a number of projects to help um, sequester nutrients. And the, the main, our, our flagship program for that is the what we call the stormwater treatment areas and these are all built we have about sixty thousand acres worth of stormwater treatment areas that are built right between this agricultural area and the northern limits of the uh, florida everglades so we will use pump stations and, and special canals to put water into these impounded wetlands that we've created and for the same reasons that cattail does so well in these nutrient enriched portions of the Everglades it actually makes a really great plant to uptake phosphorus so um when we have a an STA wetland they're all kind of compartmentalized into flowways typically what the district will do is manage for cattail in the front end of these flowways so we we don't have to do much you you build a, a levee around it you put some water in that's got a lot of phosphorus Cattail will just come in on its own. Put some water in place and then get out of the way. Pretty much. And and cattail comes in. uh, My team will kill me for saying uh, to agreeing with you that it's just that easy because it it actually there's a lot involved with that. But yeah, cattail immediately comes into these areas and it does a fantastic job of sequestering the nutrients Uh, because of that dense clonal growth it makes a physical barrier to the water slows the velocity of that water down and increases sedimentation of all that nutrient-rich particulate in the water and uh, and then further on down through that flowway, we then tend to manage a little bit against cattail uh, because uh, when we get to these lower concentrations of phosphorus we find that submerged aquatic vegetation and this tends to be native submerged aquatic uh, species do a better job of scrubbing that water when we get down to these lower concentrations, say lower than 30 parts per billion phosphorus. So they do sort of the final touches uh, towards getting that water down to our goal, which is 13 parts per billion phosphorus before sending that south into the Everglades. So what do we have here? We have a situ- situation where if you're standing, if you're if you're remembering my little virtual uh, map that we created, if you're standing on the levee, you can look to the north and see these big stormwater treatment areas that we've done. And they're full of cattail. And it's a highly beneficial plant that we love to have and we cultivate. You can turn 180 degrees and look south to the Everglades and see cattail and say, hey, that's a nuisance species. It's impacting the habitat. So we really have a uh, an interesting juxtap- juxtaposition that I think will uh illustrates the complexity and, as Christine said, the context of how we use the word nuisance plant, right? So,
2: when you turn the other way and you're seeing it in areas that you don't want it in there, so it's causing an ecological problem, there's issues there, what do you then do? How do you make decisions? Do you act? It is a native plant. How do you work through that scenario?
1: Right. So, Uh, We are interested in reducing cattail dominance, of course, in the northern Everglades, and I'd say the district uses um, two main approaches to this, and I'll, I'll utilize a healthcare metaphor if you don't mind. We're sort of attempting to cure the disease and provide supportive therapy at the same time, and curing the disease is what we talked about. We want to get the water right. We want to reduce the amount of phosphorus coming into the Everglades, and that is the underlying cause, right? That's the the reason that we have such aggressive growth of cattail. And it's really interesting, um, you know we've we've had these programs in place for a number of years, and we are beginning to see evidence that suggests that we're turning the corner a little bit. Uh, we certainly still have a lot of cattail out there. But we are pretty sure we're seeing a reduction in the expansion rate of cattail as it moves further south, which is a good sign, right?
2: So it's struggling to continue to invade because you've done such a good job upstream of cleaning the water up.
1: That's that's what we're hoping is happening. Um, but we also expect that these large cattail stands are likely to be self-sustaining. And in the long term, you know, due to its reproductive advantage, those copious seeds that we talked about, and its ability to mine phosphorus from deeper zones of the soil, um, we don't think it's just going to go away if we reach our water quality goals, right? That we think there's sort of a new trajectory, a new steady state of this cattail community. Um, So this has led the South Florida Water Management District to begin feasibility studies to determine if active management in these impacted areas could sort of jumpstart the recovery of native plant communities and the lost ecosystem functions in those areas. This effort has been going on for a number of decades now, and it's led by uh, Dr. Sue Newman, um, also a University of Florida graduate, I should say, um, and her colleagues in the applied sciences group. And I've been collaborating with her and her team for over a decade now, looking at ways that we can actively manage these cattail zones in localized areas to try to return some of those ecological functions. What we found is that the use of the herbicide Amazomox at moderate rates is providing selective control of cattail, and we're pleased to find that beneath these dense stands of cattail are remnants of the original plant communities. It's really interesting. We'll go out and do a, a treatment with this herbicide and are able to reduce the cattail at least, you know, for a year or two. And lo and behold, beneath there are these old uh, landscape features where you see that sawgrass ridge and then these open water, deep water sloughs. And within a short amount of time, we, you know, by releasing these native plant communities from the competition of cattail, we see recovery. And we're seeing return of water, you know, good water quality numbers. We're seeing return of wildlife, periphyton, a number of things. Now, It's not feasible to say that we could then go and use a Masimox over 28,000 acres of the Everglades. Uh, But what we're doing is strategically improving habitat in these localized areas for the benefit of wildlife that need it at the early start of the drawdown as waters recede.
2: So basically what I'm hearing is we had this beautiful ecosystem 200 years ago. People start coming in and they start filling their needs for food and other things. So now the Everglades start to change because of that influence, but then humans have come back in, they've recognized the need. They've started cleaning up that water. We're starting to selectively remove these cattails that have become too dominant. So we're given a leg up a little bit with the management to get those jump start, those natives that are hanging on. So it's the water quality, it's the the selective management, it's a lot of things coming together to bring the Everglades back to where they used to be.
0: And for me, I'm just—it's incredible to hear the restoration that is that is now coming back after all of those efforts, right? The fact that you guys are seeing—what did you say? These historic plant communities are coming back.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, you know, in these localized areas, and you know, we we weren't really sure what we, what would happen when we did this, and in fact, we weren't even sure how much of the remnant plant communities were there, and it was a real surprise uh, to see these large zones where we're managing cattail. Much of the sawgrass was still there. It was weakened, of course, from that competition, but in a short amount of time, we're seeing uh, the return of many of the obligate wetland plants that are typical of the less disturbed parts of the Florida Everglades.
2: Boy, there's another example that an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure because to get those Everglades back, to cure them and to bring them back, there has had to be 60,000 acres of STAs. There's all of this effort that has gone on to try to undo what was done originally. So, boy, prevention and really thinking about those man-made decisions on the front end, it makes such a big difference down the road.
1: Yeah, it really does. And that's one of the reasons that we focus in our invasive species program on prevention and and dealing with things early on, because uh, as we've seen, you know, the, the old idiom, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, might be more like a ton of cure, because we have spent decades and will continue to spend a lot of time and money to undo the impacts from the historic disturbances to the Everglades.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Leroy. Is there some big takeaway that you'd like to remind listeners as we kind of round out the episode today?
1: Well, you know, as again, as we've said, I think, um, you know, using being very careful about the terminology that we use when we're describing species um, really is important because I think it does cause a lot of confusion and puts unnecessary stigmas on, on species by you know the, the public and frankly, among us practitioners that are engaged in invasive species management. And I think the other point that's really important is that, you know, as you've said, context matters, right? Uh, when we talk about a nuisance species, we're not talking about the species as a whole, but individuals of that species or groups of individuals in a certain context. And it's usually, uh, that context usually has something to do with human related disturbances. So as good stewards of our public lands, if we can find ways to reduce the underlying causes that creates a situation where we have these uh, aggressive nuisance plants, fragmentation, water quality, fire suppression, whatever it might be. If we could do a better job of preventing those in the first place, we would have less need to talk about nuisance plants.
0: Yeah. So working with the environment and growing with it and protecting it, but then also turning these nuisance natives that sometimes can be seen as troublemakers into tools is what I've heard today.
2: And I think there's another takeaway here as well, that what we've been discussing is Things have happened, plants have been brought in, the environment has been changed, often with the best of intentions. But here we are now, several decades, if not a hundred years into the future, we're having to try to piece back together what things used to be. And it's going to require management and it requires a tremendous amount of intentionality. So you have to have a goal and you have to start moving to that goal. And to do that, you have to have an integrated approach you have to have stas you have to have engineering you have to have management and the the management is not just a herbicide it's going to be harvesting and fire and all of these things. And we have to be willing to put all of these tools together to get to the goal. And it needs to be intentional. It needs to be science-based. It needs to be part of a plan. And thankfully, we've got groups all over Florida that are passionate about these ecosystems who have spent decades studying them and putting these plans together.
0: So to all our listeners, thank you so much for joining us again for yet another episode about working in the weeds. And if you have any suggestions or idea for the podcast, please email us at caip at ifis.ufl.edu. And don't forget to follow us on social media and hit subscribe if you want the next episode in two weeks.